We are learning more about the man arrested in Utah County on suspicion of ritualistic child sex abuse and his ties to Utah County Attorney David Levitt, who will not be allowed to prosecute this case. Fox 13 News investigative reporter Adam Herbitz has tonight's update. Well, there are a number of reasons why the Utah County Attorney's Office might have a conflict of interest, not just because Levitt named himself as a suspect earlier this year. He's also given multiple statements about his relationship with Hamblin and some of the alleged victims. As you're about to see, the nature of those statements have changed over the past two years. Would you mind riding in the back of a police car? Men and women allege David Hamblin used positions of power as a father, a therapist, a neighbor, and as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to ritualistically abuse children. He was arrested Wednesday morning, but investigators say he probably won't be the only one. I have nothing to hide. Until Hamblin's arrest, Fox 13 News chose not to identify any of the subjects of the investigation. But that did not stop Utah County Attorney David Levitt from outing himself as a suspect in June and describing his relationship with Hamblin. I prosecuted the therapist in Jeff County for poaching a deer. He poached a deer to use for ritualistic purposes. This therapist was my elders quorum president in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was my neighbor. I had a family connection. During that same press conference, Levitt described his accuser as tragically mentally ill. She's one of the same women who accused Hamblin and others. There, there is no organized ring of abuse. It was, it was debunked. But watch and listen. More than two years before that press conference, Levitt sat down for a different interview and was asked if he thought ritualistic sex abuse was real. He went on to describe Hamblin and his own accuser, calling her a victim. Do I think that occurs? Yeah, I think it occurs. I know some victims of it. Yeah, they, they, I know some victims of it. I, I was not in a position to prosecute it. Who was into Native American stuff had killed deer and get deer hearts and drink their blood and drink the deer's blood. At the time, Levitt was under investigation by Homeland Security. These clips are now evidence in that case. We want to warn you, some of them are very graphic. How do you train a dog to roll over when it's time to roll over? You know, you do it by giving a reward and repetition. If a man wants to program some little girl to give immoral sex anytime he wants to, you start young and give rewards. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, unfortunately, I, I've never, you know, it's the same way you help a child learn how to make their bed. And welcome to We Are The People Radio. This is your host, Jason Preston, and again with my beautiful co-host. How you doing, beautiful? As good as can be with this type of content. Yeah, well, hopefully you guys have seen the first show. If you've not seen the first show, uh, make sure you go back and watch the show that was released previous to this on ritualistic abuse. Um, otherwise, this will not make sense. But uh, today we are going to be jumping into something that got all over the news. Uh, even Glenn Beck caught it. 
Um, and it really kind of caught our attention last year, when, uh, which was when David Levitt uh, came under fire for the ritualistic abuse. So uh, everyone kind of knew there was something going on, but no one really knew exactly what. Uh, in our last show, we got into David Hamblin. And so again, it lays the foundations for much of what we're going to talk about today. So if you've not seen the show, uh, please first go watch the show we did on David Hamblin. That will help what we're going to cover today makes sense. Um, that being said, same as last time, due to the graphic nature of this content, viewer discretion is advised. Uh, we'll try to give you a little bit of a heads up so you can fast forward those sections if you need to. Um, also, there's a good chance this is that uh, will be taken down off YouTube. So please, if you were, if you want to find it, if it's not there, uh, go to our Rumble channel. We are the People UT. Uh, that's the same as our Instagram and all of our social media. Or you can go to our website, wearethepeople.org. And on our website, there are resources for if you want to get involved, uh, if you want to get involved with the different groups, if you want to find other information out there in the state, uh, go to the wearethepeople.org and you can find um, plenty of ways to get involved and to make a difference. So with that being said, uh, we've got a lot to cover. So Alexia, do you want to introduce our guest again? Yes. And and just like last time, I do want to reiterate, these are not speculations. This is all based on victim statements, court documents, verified and corroborated by multiple sources. Um, so what we're saying now is is not speculation. We're not judge and jury, but we are just simply stating the facts for you to either research yourself or dig into. Um, as always, we're reachable on our social media platforms and through our website with any any questions. And the purpose of this is uh, for your awareness. It's heavy, it's deep, uh, and it's graphic. So, you know, put your children probably somewhere outside of the room. This is for mature audiences. So if, uh, if you're willing to take a deep dive into this and have an open mind, it will really give you an, an indication of what's going on in your backyard. One of the things I'd add is um, if you have been affected by this, uh, and personally, this is the time to, to stand up to this. We, we are, this, this is going to get out through social media. We are not going to let the mainstream media squash this. The only way we can bring justice to this is through mass awareness. So if this is something you have personal experience with, uh, silence will only allow this dragon to get stronger. It is, we have to expose it and we need more people to come out. So we encourage you, if, if you have uh, been affected by this, to speak up. With that being said, let's introduce uh, our guest. So we'll put all of the documents, the court documents, the references, to everything on today's show in the notes. Um, but we are very, very grateful to have back in the studio Goel. Goel, thanks for joining us again. Thanks Goel, for having me. Goel is a 22-year investigative researcher and, and sadly, an expert in pedophilia. Uh, pedophilia is something that, of course, has become all too prominent in media in this day and age. We have Epstein Island, uh, which is you know, almost so in our faces, but never really, I mean, when will we ever see the Epstein client list, you right, know? And right. while it's so easy to say, oh, this is just stuff going on in mainstream media, it could never happen here. We have it happening in our own backyard. So this Well, is, and Maria Brockovich. I was just getting to that. So, oh, and then on an inter- yeah, inter- Abramovich. Abram, just a Abramovich. Satanist, a known yeah. Satanist uh, that has now been uh, proclaimed the ambassador to Ukraine to watch over children and schools, of all things. Just put a known Satanist in charge of, of the children in Ukraine. What could go wrong? So 
This is not something just international. This is not something just in Hollywood. This is something that is alive and well and in potentially your neighborhoods. So we're not here to scare you. We're here to inform you. And let's get started with uh, today's David Levitt case. So today's topic is David Okerlund Levitt, who's an alleged Church of Satan member, an alleged child rapist, an alleged, alleged child murderer, and an alleged child trafficker. So to give you a, a background on who David Okerlund Levitt is, he is the son of Dixie Levitt, who is the co-founder of the Levitt Group. He is the brother of former Governor Mike Levitt, the founder of healthcare concern, uh, consulting firm Levitt Partners, the former president and CEO of the Levitt Group. Mike Levitt was also the administrator of the EPA, and he was promoted to Secretary of Health and Human Services under President George W. Bush. He is currently serving as the president of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. David Okerlund Levitt is the former Utah County and Jewab County attorney. He's an alleged member of the LDS Church of Satan and a child rapist and murderer. He engaged in the illegal adoption of Alessandra Florence Fishinghawk, a Native American girl off of the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana. So the family connection is David Lee Hamblin, his father Robert Lee Hamblin, um, his grandfather Claudius Hamblin, and then there is Wallace Hamblin, Oscar Hamblin, and Isaiah Hamblin. Isaiah Hamblin had two sons of, of note, Oscar Hamblin and Jacob V. Hamblin. Jacob E. Hamlin is the connection to the Levitt bloodline because he married Sarah Priscilla Levitt, who was the daughter of Jeremiah Levitt, who is the father of Lemuel S. Levitt. Lemuel S. Levitt is the father of Thomas D. Levitt Sr., who is the father of Vincent E. Levitt, the father of Dixie and Bert Levitt, the, father, the founders of the Levitt Group. And Dixie is the father of David Okerlund and Governor Michael Levitt. This makes David Levitt the second great-grandnephew of the wife of Hamlin's second great-granduncle. So it sounds like a mouthful because it is, but that's how the families are connected. And, and you'll see in a press conference that David Levitt said there was a family connection um, in a videotape pres press conference. I know it's a little weird, but you know what this reminds me of is when you're doing that is in the, in the scriptures when it goes through the genealogies. It's always because that's always important in the scriptures is to is is the genealogy and it's interesting that you're that uh, you're doing the same family connections here. Not yeah. that there's any obviously, but well, maybe there's well, a, there is. I mean, think about you know, and this is a, <clears throat> a major trend. Uh, digress, I digress here, but Al Capone, what took him down? It was his CPA. So yeah, yeah. It was accounting. It's so sometimes it's something peripheral that will ultimately be your demise. It's not the fact that you're actually murdering, raping. Dealing, it could be something that's used to expose you, and genealogy could be the very thing that could help us. Could be him. So Hamlin and Levitt served their uh, missions in Hillcomora and New York City at the same time. We don't have any proof that they crossed paths, but we do have proof that they were related and they were, they were aware of each other. And they were in New York State at the same time on, in two separate missions. So the allegations against David Oakland and Levitt Rachel, Eliza, and Katie Hamlin accused David Levitt of securing a young boy from the Greens who was sacrificed at a CS ceremony in Spring City, Utah. The Hamlin daughters also accused David Levitt of raping them during a computer game of risk. They further accused David Levitt and his wife, Shalom Eastwood Levitt, 
of hiring David Lee Hamlin to train them in how to induce compliance with ritual abuse of their children. Victim Statement 2, Rachel Hamlin. Rachel Hamlin details a 1997 and 1998 visit to the Levitt home in Nephi, Utah, where David Lee Hamlin demonstrated his training technique by forcing his daughters to perform sexually for David and Shalom Levitt. Sorry, is Shalom his wife? wife? That's his wife, yes. 1997 to 1998, the time is night, obviously, from the victim statements, and this is David and Shalom Lovett's house in Nephi. One night, we went to David and Shalom Lovett's house for dinner with both families. David had, or Rosie, made his rinse off in the shower and make sure we were ready for sex before we left. David threatened us in the car to be instantly obedient to anything they asked us to do. They wanted to impress the Levitts, their old friends, and drum up, as David said, some more business from them. They said if we failed, they would call the group before we returned home that night and have them over to play a game of hide-and-go-seek with us. They would block the doors and make us hide in the house and have their friends, who would pray to become possessed, come find us. Once they did, they would attack and rape us. After a late dinner, David... Uh, Miriam and the Levitt kids ran off to play. David turned to me and said, Rachel, is Tabitha here? Maybe she can come out and talk to us. I knew he was putting on a show because he rarely asked me to come out that way. He and Dave, our family always called him Dave or Uncle Dave when we were younger, ran at each other and Dave clapped. I knew what was required of me. I immediately smiled and nodded and got up from the table. The men got up from the table while Rosie and Shalom cleaned up. David and Dave sat in their family room, living rooms. I followed them and walked around seductively. Rosie and Shalom came in and sat down. Dave, David said, Tabitha, why don't you and Eliza do something together for us? Dave was trying to be clever and testing me a little. This was my cue to put on a show undress and masturbate in front of them. I did. Shalom leaned over to David and said, she's really good. Soon they started touching themselves a little. When I orgasmed, they clapped and cheered. I hoped I was done, but then David told me to do it with Eliza. Roselle, or at this time it was Katie because the other victim statement corroborates it, Roselle brought her into the room. I stood in the middle of the room, stretching my arms above me, glancing and smiling at Dave and Shalom, running my fingers through my hair, etc. By the I, way, how old is she here? She would have been between 17 and 18 years of age. Okay. She could have potentially been 16 to 18 years of age if she had not had her birthday yet in 1997 at this time. So I had been trained that when Dave called, David called me Tabitha, the show never stopped. Katie came in and looked upset. David gave her a warning glare. They told me to begin. I undressed her and gave her oral sex. After a while, Dave stood and put his arms in a V and praised Lucifer. The other adults put their arms up and Dave prayed for Lucifer's Holy Spirit to enter their bodies. Then the elders began to touch each other and an orgy broke out. They started undressing. Dave came over to me and pushed Katie out of the way. He made me get on all fours, and he sodomized me. 
Roselle and Shalom started kissing, and Roselle gave her oral sex while she sat on the edge of the chair. David made Katie suck on his penis. After the orgy, I think we stayed a little later while David and Dave talked. I'm just going to play devil's advocate with one thing. Outside of the call-out that you made about her being a minor, it does sound somewhat consensual at this time. And she sounds what? like a will... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, well, no. if you if you had paid attention to the first part of that victim statement, she said, they were if they didn't comply, we're going to have the members of the group come over and play hide and seek with you, and they're going to block the doors, and they're going to rape you all night in the house while they're possessed. And if you read through the statements from the time they're young, they are trained by their mother, by, by their parents to seduce men, and, and they're punished when they don't. I mean, it is constantly nonstop. They're... Se- they are constantly sexualized. In those so, victim statements, not once do they ever indicate that they consented to any of this. I mean, they like, understand been that raped maybe, their whole maybe didn't hear me, like when I was reading it. But there is no interpretation of this that is reasonable. That would say that those girls consented to what happened. Yeah, they were, they, and they are trained to seduce. And they're doing their job. And if they did not do their job, they would pay a price. And that is, and when you read through the victim statements, it is over and over and over. Their job is you seduce. We, they, we bring them into the home. So the video camera, you seduce the men. They don't seduce the men. They are severely punished. And for the most part, are all of these rituals of these orgies, it seems like, are they all videotaped? Not all of them. No. I mean... A good many of them were, and, a good, and some of the sacrifices were videotaped and photographed. So that material is still theoretically out there. Um, and it could be used to secure a conviction eventually. So the crimes that were committed here, 76-5-3081, human trafficking for sexual exploitation, the purpose of the trip to Nephi was to drum up more business for David and Roselle Hamlin's prostitution child pornography and child training businesses. That makes that trip to Nephi, child, it makes it child trafficking because they were transporting those girls for the purposes of sexual exploitation to demonstrate their training techniques and the efficacy of those techniques. So David Lee Hamlin transported his daughters to Nephi to perform sexually. He used threats to induce their compliance. David Levitt clearly knew the purpose of the visit because he voiced no surprise at the girls' activities. Levitt and his wife both participated in the criminal activity, and therefore they are both criminally culpable. And yeah. the fact of the matter, even if in theory they, they did enjoy it in theory, they're minors. Mm-hmm. End of story. It's, it's, it, 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 there, is no, there is no justification, no excuse, no nothing. This is pedophilia at, at best. Yeah. So the difference would be if they're under 14, it's sodomy on a child. If they're between 14 and 17 years and 364 days of age, then it's forcible sodomy. That's the only distinction Utah law makes. So 76-5-403, forcible sodomy. David Levitt forcibly sodomized Rachel Hamlin, who would have been older than 14 years of age at the time of the offense. It is unclear from the context which children were also forcibly sodomized through forced oral sex on Shalom Levitt. If the child in question was under 14... Shalom Levitt would have committed sodomy on a child, a violation of 76-5-403.1. 
In any event, the Lovitz are guilty of multiple felonies in this one incident if Rachel Hamlin is telling the truth. The corroboration is that Katie Hamlin's victim statement references the exact incident where David Levitt forcibly sodomized Rachel Hamlin at the Levittstein Five residence. Eliza Hamlin's victim statement references a risk computer game at the Levitt's residence where she alleged that David Levitt raped her after winning the game. And each time she lost a country, he made her perform a sexual act on him. So it's pretty clear if the victim statements are true, the Levitts are, are very criminally culpable and very criminally active within this group. This is another example of the training. Shalom Levitt and her sister took part in the same training. I heard Shalom and David have sex in his office several times as a girl, and I know there was more than one reason she went to him. Rosie often told me of Shalom and her sister, who spent a lot of time trying to understand what David and Rosie could do so well to control their children. Shalom met with David in the Provo house for the most part, and sometimes in Spring City, or her house in Nephi. I remember one night the Levitts invited David over for dinner, and after dinner they called Rachel Tabitha again and made her do sexual things to herself, to me, and to others. David and Shalom loved it, and David Hamlin loved the attention. He was grinning the whole evening. Joe and Lee Binion also were trained by David to learn these things, and they traded all sorts of things with Rosie and David for this. Rosie and Lee had a competition or a rivalry over who was more seductive, powerful, or who ranked higher in their group. She laughed and said how she made Lee paint Rosie's portrait in exchange for what Joe wanted, which was sometimes sex with Rosie. Joe and Lee did sessions with David in the Spring City and Provo houses since we moved up to Utah and up until 1998. So that would mean that David Lee Hamlin was training Joe and Lee Binion to abuse their daughters, Louisa, Zena, and Ada Lee. And they were employing his techniques to induce dissociation and compliance and obedience with this type of abuse. How often are these rituals happening, would you say, on average? The girls talk about Bible studies happening multiple times a week. They talk about going to people's houses and, and for those, ceremonies. In the <clears throat> And when he says, you said Bible studies? That's what they would call them initially right. in the early 90s and late 80s. But the purpose of it was to go there and perform a CS endowment ceremony or a CS triumph ceremony or a CS gathering ceremony or a CS fertility ceremony. They had numerous ceremonies that they were performing in these houses and at outdoor locations in Spring City. I always find it interesting that they you would use whether it's scripture or uh, church hymns, and invert while, and mock them and, and do things while the kids are reading or, or singing. To me, that just was the ultimate darkness is to mock God while they did horrific things to these kids. Well, the worst part about it is, is when you talk to survivors who are now adults and they can't stand to listen to general conference, they're still endowed members of Church. They still go to church, like sacrament meeting, but they can't stand and listen to general conference. They can't stand certain primary hymns because they're triggered. Yes, right? because every time they've heard that song, it was they would they would demand certain they would do certain things to them when they heard those songs. They were using songs. Pull your like, mic a little closer, if you don't mind. They were using songs like "Abide with Me," "Tis Eventide," 
during the abuse. Um, when I did a video I mean, it's on, sick. Yeah, when I did a video on Joe Binion, I used that as the backing track to make the point, which is this is what they played when they were raping these girls. So we have another experience here. As you can see, it's experience number 72 in Nephi, Utah. David and Shalom Levitt are close friends of David and members of the group. They have been at our home for ceremonies, parties, and orgies. We would also spend time with them at their home in Nephi pretty often for several years. David brought, brought Rachel's Mac computer with us when we went over for dinner at the Levitt's. After we ate, my parents and I, my sisters and I were made to play Risk on the computer with them. Anytime we lost a country, we had to do something sexual to David and David Levitt. When David Levitt took my last country, he raped me. That's Eliza Hamblin. So my question was not so much for the, the minor age children, but there, these orgies that were going on were, were fairly frequent with the adults that were... At the end of virtually every single get-together that they had. By that token... Wouldn't they be impregnating the adult females? They impregnated the, the adults and the children, but you have to understand what they viewed abortion as. They viewed abortion as a sacrament. That's my question. They were bringing in midwives from polygamous groups to train these girls in how to perform abortions. And so they would let the girls carry the children that they had conceived with the men of the group to a certain term and then they would abort them because they believed that those children, their spirits would be in Lucifer's kingdom, the outer darkness, and they would be their servants. So the intention above the sick perversion and power is also having material for their ritual and, and sacrifice. Yes, and in some cases they would eat the corpses of the aborted children. Wow. Corroboration. From Katie Hamlin's victim statements, we know that Rachel Hamlin was forced to do sexual things to the adults and to her. Therefore, Katie Hamlin was the other Hamlin daughter who was brought into the room to perform sexually. Katie would have been between 11 and 12 years of age at the time of the offense. From Eliza Hamlin's victim statements, we know that David Levitt forced her to perform multiple sexual acts, culminating in a rape. Eliza Hamlin would have been between 9 and 11 years of age at the time of the offense. Corroboration, Miriam Hamlin. During her time at Mazer Preparatory Academy, Miriam Hamlin made acquaintances that she would continue into her 20s. She told those acquaintances about the abuse she and her sisters had suffered, and she further alleged that David and Shalom Levitt's children, Adam and Danielle, were also victims of the abuse. Adam and Danielle Levitt were her classmates at Mazer. Not a single child of the named defenders in the Hamlin victim statements has come forward to deny the allegations against their parents. I think that's the thing people, I know I had a hard time with, is the fact that it's parents doing it to children, you know, the generational aspect of this, because that just seems like, <clears throat> I guess that's the ultimate evil, right? Your own children, to abuse your own children. It's, it's, that's, it's just very hard to wrap your head around someone being able to do that to their children. Yes, it's disgusting, but so Eliza Hamblin gives a specific example of David Levitt orally sodomizing her when she was between six and eight years of age to further humiliate you when you were stripped while you were stripped naked and being formed to perform oral sex on a person 
Our elders and members of the group would often come behind you and poke their fingers, penis, tongue, or some other object into your anus or vagina. At one party of David's in our family room, I was made to give oral sex to David Levitt, who was sitting. I was down on all fours in front of him, and someone came up behind me and smeared something on my anus. When I went to look behind me to see what was happening, David Levitt hit my head and told me something like he didn't tell me I could stop. But the next minute, everyone was laughing when our dog was led up to me and licked the food off of me. I remember pictures were taken. Jeez. David Okerlund Levitt. In 2022, David Levitt held a press conference to disparage Catherine Hamlin as tragically mentally ill and denying that there was any organized ring of ritual sexual abuse. In 2020, however... Two years before, he gave an interview to a documentarian acknowledging ritual abuse and describing Katie Hamlin and her father, David Hamlin. So this is that video. And was asked if he thought ritualistic sex abuse was real. He went on to describe Hamlin and his own accuser, calling her a victim. Do I think that occurs? Yeah, I think it occurs. I know some victims of it. Yeah, they, they, I know some victims of it. I, I was not in a position to prosecute it. Who was into Native American stuff had killed deer and get deer hearts and drink their blood and drink the deer's blood. At the Why would he admit that? There is no organized ring of abuse. This therapist was my elders quorum president in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was my neighbor. I had a family connection. Do I think that occurs? Yeah, I think it occurs. There is no organized ring of abuse. Sounds like he's pulling a Spencer Cox. <laughs> so... As you can see, what changes in two years is that he becomes aware that Katie Hamlin accused him because one of the former attorneys in his office allowed a fugitive from justice named Nicholas Rossi, a.k.a. Nicholas Alavertian, to see victim statement three. The reason why that individual did that is unknown, but that individual traveled to Scotland purportedly to represent Nicholas Rossi. And Nicholas Rossi saw victim statement three, and we know that he saw it because he started putting it on his website. Nicholas Rossi is an accused fugitive from justice who is responsible for multiple sexual assaults as well as various con games. Um, so that's how David Levitt became aware that the allegations were against him, and then he held that press conference holding up a 153-page victim statements and saying... Denying what he had said. Just pull it, Chris. <clears throat> pull it to you. Denying what he had said two years before, um, which was, I know it's real. I, I actually know someone. Why would he say he knows it's real? Why would he have admitted that the first time, though? Was that undercover? Or that, report, that reporter? What, why, why would he? Why would he say that? Yeah. Um, makes sense. Why would he admit it? Well, it's real? why would he hold that press conference when he hadn't been publicly accused of anything? Mike Smith had not publicly accused him of anything. Mike Smith had not issued any statement whatsoever. 
This is a man. That's who, Sheriff Mike you're Smith. Gonna, you're, yeah, Sheriff Mike Smith of Utah County. This is a man, and David Levitt is, um, who often speaks without thinking, in my opinion, and without considering the repercussions. Some of that is the fact that he's a Levitt, and he has gotten away with this behavior, this alleged behavior, for so long. And they he, just feel like they're untouchable. There's that, then there's the fact that I've talked to probably probably close to 80 people who know Levitt or who have encountered him over the years. And only one of them had anything good to say about him. Like it was an ex, ex-polygamous wife of Tom Green. And she said she directly credited him for putting Tom Green in prison which enabled her to leave that group. But she was the only one who had anything positive to say about him at all. That's actually surprising because one of the things that Levitt was under scrutiny for when the election was last year was that he was very soft on criminals, that he wasn't prosecuting and that he was a alleged... Well, this was this predated prosecutor. his time as Utah County Attorney. This was back when he was Jewab County Attorney. And we're going to get into that as well. Okay. So David Okerlund Levitt, if the allegations are true, David Levitt is guilty of rape of a child, forcible sodomy, human trafficking for sexual exploitation, and other crimes. One of the other alleged crimes against David Levitt is murder. Katie Hamlin, David Levitt, and child murder. Katie Hamlin alleges that between 1995 and 1997, David and Shalom Levitt showed up to Hamlin's Spring City home for a sacrifice with a young boy they claimed was from the Greens. You said that a couple times, from the Greens. That Is that a plagiarist? That's, that's what we're going to get into okay. in just a minute. Each year, Church of Satan members have to perform a rebirth ceremony in which they perform an act reaffirming their dedication to Satan. The ceremony takes place around the birthday of the member. An endowment ceremony was performed in the house, and the boy was taken outside and killed. So this is experience 110, the murder of the boy at the White Rock at the Spring City House of David Lee Hamblin. Frequency, four times. So when I say that there are 17 homicides in this victim statement, I'm only counting the specific homicides that are mentioned. I'm not counting the frequency that is alleged in the victim statement. So there's probably more than 17 distinct homicides, but the girls only describe 17 specific homicides. So the people who are involved... David and Rosie, David and Shalom Levitt, Joe and Lee Binion, Joe and Lee Binion's friends, and other of David's friends. There were many times that these kinds of ceremonies happened at our home. They were not always murders, but sometimes people in the group, especially victims and children in the group, were tortured but not killed. I had other experiences similar to this one, and I remember David, I remember Rachel also did. A couple of these experiences are listed below. Experience killing an older boy in the coffin trunk or on the coffin trunk of the Spring City House. Experiencing watching uh, David and Rosie kill a baby in my grandparents' condo in Provo. Experience watching them kill a full-grown man. Sorry. Again, not just her parents, her grandparents in in, in, in that experience. So just again, showing that it's that the generational of 
abuse. <clears throat> yes. So experience watching them kill a full-grown man. Later, they put this man's head in a plastic bag and froze it. Then they put it in Spring City in the outside freezer, the toilet in the Spring City upstairs, girls' bathroom, and in, and Rosie even took it in her blue and white cooler to Provo, and they teased us by putting it up there, too, in different places. An experience where they killed a little girl with a deformity in her mouth or lips. One evening in the Provost, in the Spring City house, several people came to our house and parked in the gravel driveway. They ate and talked, and it got darker and darker outside, and then everyone put on their dark clothing and robes. David Shalom Levitt had come with a young boy David said came from the Greens place. The boy looked very sad and was somewhere between 6 and 10 years of old. While the adults were take, talking, Rachel and I would try to talk to him. Everyone was teasing him, telling us to go have sex with him. We took him up to our bedroom, upstairs. When he saw my briar horse's toys, his eyes lit up. He said he had seen one of these toys once and wanted one. We let him touch and play with them. I showed him how to use the saddles and all the other miniatures about my barn, but he was more interested in just having them run around in the coral that I had. We asked if he wanted anything, and he said he just wanted to play. Rachel started crying and got up and left. I wanted to tell this boy that he was going to be killed and we could let him out, but I knew that they would only hurt him more and us if he left and they caught him. Moreover, the group would often place one or two, sometimes more adults, around the house and property to scout and watch for people leaving or coming. They would warn each other with bird calls and other animal noises. Like the boy Rachel had been forced to kill, his name was John, and Rosie kept his body cut up in pieces in the freezer in a plastic bag ready to make food out of. The plastic bags in the freezer said elk, V for venison, and J for John. I knew I was supposed to kill this boy because Rosie had told me earlier that this was a big night for me. I think it was one of my rebirth days. I planned to kill him quickly as I knew there was no way out of killing him. David told us to bring the lucky boy down and people laughed. It was really dark and we all went out to the living room to do a ceremony where the endowment was enacted. They made the boy play Eve in the ceremony and David played Satan. David would lean over and tell him what to say on the few words that he had to speak. In their ceremony, when Eve has sex with Satan, David beat and sodomized the young boy. They also laughed when David Levitt played Jesus Christ and beat the boy over and over when he had sex with Satan. They also laughed every time that David Hamlin leaned over the boy to whisper to him what to do. They would catcall and ask Satan what Satan was whispering in Eve's ear and make sexual jokes. When the ceremony was finished, Rosie took the boy into the kitchen and gave him pills. Rosie often gave me and Rachel pills when they were going to torture us or when a client had really hurt us badly. Everyone started heading outside to the White Rock. When we arrived, David talked about the White Rock. They tore off the young boy's clothes and then tied him up to it on his knees with his arms behind his back and began beating him. After they had put the thorn crown on him, and they used whips on him too, ours as well as Joe and Lee's. We had a crown made of thorns that 
David often used in therapy, ceremonies, and their daily torture and abuse of us. They called him Jesus Christ. They told me that I was to kill Jesus. They gave me a piece of glass to do it with. David took my hand, and we, uh, we sliced the naked, naked boy just under the ribs. I tried to kill him fast and lunge for his neck so I could kill him quickly, but David grabbed me and told me it wasn't time and that I needed to, do, I needed to see the boy's strength. I tried to slice my own neck, and David grabbed my hand and didn't let me do it. It was common to try and commit suicide during these episodes. David Lovett, one of Joe Binion's friends that he had bought, walked up next to the boy and stood by him to ensure that I couldn't kill him or myself if I tried. He threatened that they would mutilate Miriam if I did anything to myself. Many people punched, hit, yelled, and sexually grabbed the boy. Joe Binion kept sticking his penis in the boy's cut, making it bigger, and eventually ejaculated into his cut. David Hamlin gave me the glass again and said to poke a hole in the boy's balls and to suck out all the semen. I did as I was told. The boy screamed again, but this time Joe's friend covered his mouth with the billowy sleeve of his robe and hand. I was so angry at my father and all these people and wanted to end this immediately. At one point, David Hamlin took out a knife and scalped the boy and held the scalp out in the air, yelling out with a Native American stereotype yell for a few seconds, and many other people joined in with him. There was blood everywhere around the boy. Then they told me to cut off his penis. I acted like I would and bent down. I could feel the blood dripping on me from the boy's head above me. I kept telling him I was sorry. I wasn't cutting like I was supposed to. Rosie came over and hit me over and over again for disobeying her. David handed me the knife, but it wasn't very sharp, so it took a while to try and saw off his penis. I stopped and slashed, sliced his throat instead. I was angry, and as soon as I cut him, David Hamlin, David Lovett, Rosie, Joe's friend, and all the people screamed and moaned. His head dropped down, and I knew he was dead. David, Rosie jumped at me with her eyes wide and started strangling me. She told me I still had to do what I was told and shoved my head in the boy's genitals and made me suck on it. There was blood everywhere. I couldn't even see what I was doing as blood dripped on, onto me from the boy. I threw up in the dirt. Rosie and David made me eat to throw up. Then everyone came over and danced around the rock and touched each other. They each sliced a piece of him off and ate it. That night I was raped by several people, including David Levitt and Lee Binion. Joe's two friends raped me too. When everyone was finished, David Levitt, David Hamlin, and Lee and Joe Binion started untying the boy and putting him into the black bag that they had brought. Together, they carried the boy to Joe Binion's kiln, or the kill, as they called it. Joe opened it up, and people stood around to watch. He took the boy out of the bag and put him in the kiln and lit it on fire with gas. I stood there staring into the fire, and I felt like I was in a daze. I felt overwhelmed with sadness. When we got back to the field, Joe grabbed my arm and started to take me into the bunkhouse, but Rosie stopped him and said I had to go clean. She told me to make sure all of the blood was gone outside and to shower in the mudroom afterwards. They put a shower right next to the mudroom. There was a door between the bathroom and the mudroom, and it didn't even have a doorknob, just a hole where the doorknob should go. Rosie took pride that her house was partially designed for stuff like this, easy access to the bathroom from the mudroom. 
linoleum that was designed to be easily cleaned, and a thick plastic polymer on the wood floor in the kitchen that, again, made it easy to clean up bodily fluids when they butchered people and animals in that room, among other things. Not many hours later, David came into my room just as there was barely any, or Rosie came into my room just as there was barely any light, and she woke up Rachel and, or probably Miriam, and said to go outside and check again to see if there was any blood or anything on the ground. It was because of ceremonies like that that there was never any grass growing around that rock. David told us it was easy to get these boys because there was usually no record of them anywhere. They were usually born at home. Rarely did any of these boys go to school unless they had plans to keep them in the group for labor or leadership. They could be any age from a baby until 18 or 19 years old and sometimes even older. When they were finished with these boys, they would often string them up and bleed them so that they could use their blood for their gardening, ceremonies, or whatever else they needed for. They didn't only use boys, however, they often used girls. I remember one girl between the ages of one and two who had a deformity in her lip that showed her teeth, and her teeth were messed up too. They really hurt her before killing her. They also used the bodies for meat. Rosie and David would butcher a boy after he was killed, unless it was part of the torturing before death, and cut them up to make food out of it later. I didn't always like eating meat as a child because we rarely knew where it came from. The kiln. The kiln was sometimes used to destroy evidence of murder. David said that burning people in Joe's kiln was one of the best methods of hiding any evidence and destroying a body. I remember them stuffing people into the kiln several times. There were times when David or David and Joe would meet up would drive up the mountain in Spring City with a bag of body parts or just bones sometimes and dispose of them up there. David and Rosie and Joe and Lee would often use the ash from the people they burned in their gardens and in Joe and Lee's compost. They would use blood to pour on the roots and onto a growing vegetable garden. If it was a special person's blood, like sometimes from one of um, our mother's abortions, Rosie would keep the blood and the fabric from the handkerchiefs to be used for the ceremonies. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm really sorry. I, I don't even know if it's right to play that stuff. That's... I didn't even know, I had not read that, and I did not see that coming. Um, I don't know. I, I apologize to our listeners. I don't even know if it's right to share that, but I mean, I don't know. People should be confronted with the truth, and I sit there and dealt with it for a year. I have read those victim statements for a solid year straight. It is ugly. It is evil. But it is what it is. And the truth should not be sugar-coated when it is ugly and evil. People have to face what has been going on in this state and in this group for decades. 
That is the only way that they're going to do something about it. And it's not G-rated, it's not PG-rated, it's not even R-rated. It's NC-17 or worse. If violence was pornography, it would look a lot like that. It's absolutely sickening. And the only way I'm able to read it is because I have read it dozens of times. The first few times that I read it, like, I threw up the first time. Um, and then I just got... I just became enraged. Um, so I went out to do what I normally do when I'm upset. To, like, hike and to shoot. Because I have a shooting berm on the land that I stay on. And I just, I took a day to just kind of decompress. I knew I had to do it for work. But what I'm saying is that that part should stay in. People need to face it for what it is. Every time I think we've reached the literal depths of hell, and it can't get worse or more graphic, there's something else that comes out. And I don't even want to really dig into it any more than you've already presented, but I'm assuming in presenting this information, it's been substantiated with the sister's testimony as well. This is directly from their victim statements. It the sister's I corroborated. I don't know how a little girl could, or a, chi- a girl could make that up. The sister's I, corroborated. I don't know anyone whose evil, twisted mind could make that up. So the girl's corroborate these stories in their victim statements. The details do not differ. Are they keeping journals? Like, how are they able to remember in such intricate detail? I mean, they were required to keep journals that their parents had control of. There's like two sets. One was like a sanitized whitewash version that their parents could keep custody of, and the other one was like documenting the activities of the group. But their parents had ultimate control of either one. Now, the sanitized whitewash one... Obviously, if there were any allegations of abuse, they could trot that out to, like, look, they have the ideal childhood. But, yes, they, every Latter-day Saint that I've ever known keeps a journal and, and writes. Like, it's just part of our heritage. So, um, so they were able to convey such detail because of the journals they were keeping? And their memories. I mean, how do you forget something like this? trauma either goes one way or the other either you're going to completely scrub it from your memory so that you never have to relive it or maybe conversely Miriam Hamlin had problems with memories but the other girls apparently did not Um, Catherine Hamlin in particular was the firecracker of the group and she just would not break she was the one who first walked into the Provo Police Department in 2012 and asked to speak to a detective and a victim's advocate and made the allegations initially against David Lee Hamlin. And if you read her victim statements relative to her sisters, she's, she's the one. She's the one who has the strength. So, someone we were talking to about this in a very close circle, obviously, said, well, you know, if um, these girls were presenting this to the police, 
why wouldn't it have why would it have not been escalated? If why wouldn't what have been escalated? Why, if, if these girls would have told the police officer, why wouldn't the police have done something about it? And that's what the, one of the questions that I got. Uh, well, in 2012, came. they did do something. They brought, they filed 18 counts against David Lee Hamlin. Um, as far as why they didn't go to the wider group, I could tell you right now, as somebody who's worked criminal defense cases, you go with what you can prove in court and you don't complicate things. The core of this is sexual abuse. And they had him on tape apologizing to his daughter for raping her. So they have him on sexual abuse counts, and that's what they were charging him with. Inexplicably, they dropped those charges in 2014. But the reason you don't go into court with the full blow-by-blow of this is because you got five pages worth of defendants, sexual abuse cases, and these types of cases are extremely cost-intensive to prosecute. They're extremely cost-intensive to investigate. So when I look at law enforcement, I divide everything into revenue-negative and revenue-positive cases. So drug cases, revenue-positive, because you have civil asset forfeiture. You can take their assets... They don't, it's an in-rim proceeding. It's directly against the property rather than the person. So they can make a lot of money off of those cases, and that's why they prosecute them. They have a means to go after them far more easily than a sex abuse case. In this country, guess how many sexual assault cases or sexual abuse allegations are cleared through an arrest or a conviction? Out of 100, guess. Not convicted. Cleared. In the United States, arrest or conviction. How many uh, cases out of 100 are cleared? Probably not many. 27%. Wow. So you have a better than 7 in 10 chance of getting away with sexually abusing someone. And that's just the cases that are reported. There are other cases that are never reported. Now think about homicide. How many homicide allegations do you think are cleared by arrest or conviction? I would assume higher. 48%, which means that you still have a better than 50% chance of getting away with murdering someone. This is not information I wish people would know. None of this. So that's the reality of the criminal justice system in the United States. And you have to understand, those cases are very difficult to prove. They're very difficult to investigate. They require a lot of resources, a lot of man hour, a lot of man hours. And one of the reasons I got into this to the extent that I did is because if you can package it up for a prosecutor or for law enforcement and you've done most of the legwork, that makes it far more likely that when you drop it in their laps anonymously, they're going to do something, they're gonna with, do it. something with it. Because all they got to do is take 30 to 60 days to do their due diligence You've collected the affidavits. You've collected locations of where key evidence would be. In a sex abuse case, you can't, if there's child pornography videos or photographs, you as a private citizen cannot take possession of it. But if you know where it is, you can point law enforcement in that direction. If you have legal expertise, you've learned how to draft motions and pleadings, 
you can dry, you can do skeleton motions and complete like you can anticipate what they're going to encounter in a court case and they can fill in the blanks with what they need um, but you try to make it as easy as possible for them to do it once you drop it on them yeah. one of the things that stuck out to me is why would they criminate themselves to these victims you know why would why would she self if she if this, she was fabricating why would she fa- why would she incriminate That's her own on the bottom self? of the slide she's confessing to at least second degree murder here and she didn't plan it there's no malice of forethought she was forced to do it but she's implicating herself in multiple homicides she's implicating her sisters in multiple homicides all of these children confessed to felony crimes in the course of their victim statements, which lends credibility to what they're saying because they don't sugarcoat their involvement. No, this was not like, sugarcoated. So according to the victim statements, David Shalom Levitt bought a boy from the Greens to David Hamlin's Spring City home for the purposes of killing the boy. Catherine Hamlin was forced to kill the boy after torturing him. Catherine Hamlin does not merely accuse the adults in her family of murder. She acknowledges committing a murder. This is not simply a case or a matter of incriminating others. Katie Hamlin also incriminates herself in this murder and other murders. Who was the boy from the Greens? David Levitt has a prior history with Tom Green, the infamous polygamist who was convicted of raping a 13-year-old. Levitt allegedly sat at Green's kitchen table and told him and his wife that the case would be a test case for legalizing polygamy in Utah. Instead, David Levitt, then the Juab County attorney, prosecuted Tom Green and sent him to prison for six years. Tom Green was a former Latter-day Saint who left the LDS in the 80s to become a polygamist. He's formerly an apostle for the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an offshoot of the Apostolic United Brethren. He married his wife, Linda Coons, in Mexico at Los Molinos, a polygamous community. Linda was just 13 years of age when Tom Green married her and consummated the relationship. Her mother, Beth Cook, was also one of Tom Green's plural wives. This is a pattern with him. He would marry mothers who already had daughters, and then he would turn around and marry and seal himself to those daughters. Do we have reason to believe he was also a Church of Satan member? Not as much as with James D. Harmson. He doesn't come across. He doesn't come up as someone who participated in CS ordinances or ceremonies, just as someone who provided children for those ceremonies. So Beth Cook alleged that David Levitt had come to visit Green at his home. This is the interview she did with the paper. Um, did you see your actions ending in prosecution? No, I thought we were safe anywhere. No one was prosecuting polygamy. I was absolutely shocked to hear that David Levitt, the Juab County attorney, had gone to the Greens' home and sat at their table and asked them to be a test case to get the anti-polygamy laws off of the books. He visited with them like they were old friends and received a lot of information from them. What was your reaction to the news of his visit? I said to Tom, are you sure he is coming as a friend or will he turn on you later? Tom said the last thing Levitt said before he left the house was that he hoped that they could be friends after this was all over. Although I halfway expected it, I was shocked and devastated when the charges were made. So what's the incentive for a polygamous family to 
willingly give up their child knowingly or unknowingly knowing that they were going to sacrifice their kids. So if you're part of a polygamous family and you have a child that's born with a congenital defect, which often happens in polygamous groups um, due to poor prenatal care and also due to the fact that some of the some of the sexual unions that produce children are incestuous, um, that child's a drain on your resources. You, you remember the little girl that was mentioned, she's deformed? Obviously, they're not going to raise her to a teenager that they can then bargain with someone for her hand in marriage. The boys in these groups are in competition with the older men for mates when they hit teenage years. So they're good for free labor. But when they start getting to 15, 16 years of age and like the girls in the groups are noticing them, they have crushes like teenagers do, they know that the profit of their group is going to send that boy away so that he doesn't compete with the men who the profit is going to seal that girl to. And maybe they don't know what they're what they're doing with the kids. I mean, there could be that deniability that they're being adopted out. <clears throat> James D. Harmson would have known because he participated in the Church of Satan rituals. At the minimum, he would have known that any child he provided from his group in Manti um, was going to be raped, and he himself raped children as part of the CS's ordinances. Like he raped a six-year-old girl allegedly in the Spring City Cemetery during a CS ordinance. Yeah, it's just hard to get your mind around even, yeah. you know, that this type of evil exists. It really is hard. I mean, but this is very I talked difficult. to one of Green's other wives, one who left him while he was in prison. And she said that Tom Green routinely came into his stepdaughter's rooms when they were 11 and 12 years of age and sexually molested them before they were sealed to him. So he started that grooming process at 11 or 12 years of age. And then at 13 or 14 years of age, he would be sealed to his stepdaughters. Then he would legally marry them at 14 and then divorce them so he could legally marry another child bride. That was his pattern. So he would never be legally married to one, to more than one woman at a time. But he would legally marry each of these women and or each of these <clears throat> girls because they were children. And then he would legally divorce them and marry another one. So Tom Green and David Levitt. Tom Green was highly visible to, due to his television appearances where he discussed his polygamous lifestyle and admitted to, openly admitted to marrying teenage girls. In the lead up to the Salt Lake Olympics, Green was becoming a public relations problem for the state of Utah. Juab County Attorney David Levitt, the brother of then Governor Mike Levitt, decided to prosecute Green for taking welfare benefits and for also having sex with his 13-year-old child bride, Linda Coons. Governor Mike Levitt was confronted around this time with the example of a Kingston group member being prosecuted for whipping his 16-year-old daughter for refusing to become the 15th wife of her uncle. Governor Mike Levitt said polygamy might be protected under religious liberty by the First Amendment when he was confronted with this specific example at a, at a press junket. That was his reaction. This girl got beat because she would engage in an incestuous marriage. And he said it was protected by the First it Amendment. It might be protected under religious liberty by the First Amendment. He later had to retract it. And this was roughly around the time that Mike Levitt's brother, David Levitt, was prosecuting Tom Green for raping Linda Green and criminal non-support. So these are 
the the headlines and whatnot when Levitt said it might be legal under the First Amendment's guarantee of religious freedom to have polygamy when confronted with the example of a 16-year-old girl being beaten by her father for refusing to marry her uncle. That's what he said. Like, he quickly backtracked from that and said polygamy was in fact illegal, but it, that it would be impossible to prosecute as sodomy or cohabitation, which are also crimes in Utah and Arizona. He was responding to a Utah case in which a man was accused of whipping his 16-year-old daughter because she refused to become the 15th wife of her uncle. There are 30,000 polygamists operating out in the open in Utah. And despite what they want to portray, this is not about consensual relationships between adults. This is about sex between men and children. You know, I've always had an issue. You know, <clears throat> I'm a very big, I am very much very conservative, lean um, libertarian. And I've always been, been the thing been the thought, look, if a man wants to marry two women and they all one day want to be married to him and it's consensual, like, why is it my business? Um, and they're of so age. I, and, they're of, and they're of age. Um, I, yeah, I have, this is really, obviously that's where this is different. This, this is, this is, this is obviously very it different. It is very and this rarely is, the this, case. This, this, this has got to be stopped. It is very rarely the case that these groups are marrying people who are 18 years of age and 18 years of age or 20 years of age and 18 years. What they're doing is these are men who are in their 30s and 40s who are marrying 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. I mean, that has to be stopped. And the 16 year olds are not consenting to it. They're doing it because they're being physically. Yeah, I mean, that has to be stopped. But so does all this stuff, all this Levitt stuff. This, yeah. I mean, the CS stuff is. In, is Stuff is, anyway, so keep, what Mike Levitt going. did was effectively trigger a lot of consequences for other people because Senate hopefuls at a debate at BYU were being asked about it. Like other people in other races were asked about it before he retracted his remarks. So David Levitt and Tom Green, although he prosecuted and convicted Tom Green for raping his 13-year-old child bride, Lindy Coons, David Levitt would pop up years later in another case involving Tom Green's son, William John Aldrick Green. William Green met a 13-year-old girl from Draper on MySpace and met up with her to have sex in February and March of 2006. His attorney was none other than David Okerlund Levitt. That's his mugshot. He was sent to jail. David Levitt... Sentence the he got oh, well, and how got old is his bargain. son? How old is his son? Eighteen at the time. Okay. So a judge sentenced the son of an imprisoned Utah polygamist to 180 days in jail for having sex with a 13-year-old girl he met on the internet site MySpace. William Green, 19, must avoid pornography, stay out out of internet chat rooms, and pay a $500 fine. Third District Court Judge Royal Hansen said. He's a remorseful kid, said his attorney, David Levitt. He's married and, a full-time, and he has full-time work. I think you'll see that this is a blip on the radar screen. Recruiting oh, so he and was grooming married. a girl. He was 13, married, too. Yes. Recruiting a 13-year-old girl in another city on social media, going twice to have sex with her. That's a blip on the radar screen to David Levitt. All right, David. Just makes you wonder from, I mean, what we've been talking about is from 80s and 90s, and now we're in the early 2000s. 
how much obviously sex trafficking just you know sound of freedom sex trafficking forget satanic ritualistic abuse in the church of satan but how much more accessible this has become over the last 20 years and it's and probably and how many uh, how much of this stuff continues to happen unreported and could probably be stopped if we had <coughs> people actually looking into this well first off what you would have to have is a significant investment in law enforcement you have to have budget allocations to local law enforcement and a lot of training to dedicate detectives to prosecute these cases. That currently doesn't exist. And when you're talking about a, a small county like, or a poor county like San Pete or Juab County, they simply don't have the resources. Even if they identify these crimes, they're not going to have the budget to prosecute it on the scale on this on the scale that it exists. Well, and when you own the the attorney general, or the the the, the attorney, the attorneys, you own the police. Uh, you know, if when you own the system, <coughs> just like what happened with David Hamblin's girls, <coughs> what good is it? It goes nowhere if you own if you own if you, if you run this the whole system. That is a very real possibility because I've recently spoken to a victim who alleged that when she was transported to abuse ceremonies, she was transported by the local sheriff and his deputies. And she she remembered enough to give me dozens of names, not only of perpetrators, but other victims. And so I'm currently in the process of mapping that out. But for David Levitt and Tom Green, the recap is as follows. Uh, David Levitt allegedly represented Tom Green in his criminal case would be a test case for legalizing polygamy in Utah. So his initial intention, if you believe that that story, is, well, yeah, we might convict you, but you're going to appeal, and we'll go to the Utah Supreme Court, and this will be the thing that we use to, to get polygamy legalized. This case, the rape of a 13-year-old girl, is how we're going to get polygamy legalized. Instead, Tom Green was convicted for raping his 13-year-old stepdaughter, Linda Coons, while going unprosecuted for raping multiple other stepdaughters he married at 13 and 14 years of age after molesting them from 11 and 12 years of age. So they basically confined this to just Linda Coons, who he transported down to Mexico to, to have a sealing ceremony, who he raped in Mexico, and who... He married at 14 years of age. And then later, in 2006, William Green's son, or Tom Green's son, William, was arrested for raping a 13-year-old girl in Draper, and David Levitt shows up as his defense attorney. So Katie Hamlin alleged that Levitt and his wife, Shalom, bought a boy from the Greens to the CS ceremony in Spring City. Katie Hamlin alleged that she was forced to murder the young boy. The crimes that were committed. Yeah, and the relationship he has with the Greens clearly there. Yeah, human trafficking for sexual exploitation and murder. <coughs> the purpose of bringing the boy to Spring City was potentially to make the Hamlin girls have sex with him and then kill him. First-degree murder. David and Shalom Levitt intentionally and knowingly caused the death of another individual, in this case, a boy from the Greens between 6 and, year, and 10 years of age. That's the allegation. So the Hamlin group, Polygamous Boys and Murder, David Lee Hamlin's, or David Levitt's procurement of a 6- to 10-year-old boy from the Greens was not the first time the Hamlin group had procured children from polygamous groups. 
As you will see, the group specifically chose polygamous group children as sacrifice victims because the children were easily accessible and because they were harder to attract due to the fact that there was no record of their existence. These groups do not have birth certificates. They don't have social security numbers. None of that. These children do not officially exist. So under the section torture, murder, and cannibalism in one of the victim statements, you read the following. Many babies, young boys, and sometimes girls, usually if they had a physical or mental impairment, taken from the polygamous group, often by James Harmson and Tom Green, they specifically named those two polygamous and were used as sacrifices in our ceremonies. Often, David, Rosie, and many other people would come down to the house, our house in Spring City, for the murder ceremonies. It was very difficult to do these up in Provo as there was less space, less privacy, and not an easy way to deal with the disposal of the bodies. In Spring City, Joe Binion used his kiln to destroy bodies. I remember many times uh, at our home during the day, there were children ready to be sacrificed when night came. There were also adults at times. These boys sometimes look apathetic to the situation, some look terrified, and others seemed relieved to die. Through more than one conversation, different boys told me that they had been lied to and treated like an animal. So the first murder I know that I participated in was around age redacted. The groups, as I was told, would often get infants or children in trade with other polygamous groups, off Indian reservations, and other ways. Sometimes they got adults, too. So to recap, David Levitt, David Lee Hamlin, and polygamous groups, Rachel, Eliza, and Katie Hamlin, allege that their parents and Church of Satan members, such as David Levitt, procured children from polygamous groups, and they specifically named James Harmson and Tom Green. Those children were raped and murdered in CS ceremonies. In addition, the boy who was brought to the CS ceremony by David and Shalom Levitt was said to be from the Greens. David Levitt had a prior relationship with Tom Green that predated his prosecution of Green for child rape and welfare fraud, and Levitt allegedly represented that the case would be a test case to legalize polygamy. So we have other examples of child sacrifice here but i think we've we've gotten the point yeah, i think we've got the point i so i'm not going to be gratuitous so i'll skip that slide <clears throat> if you really want to watch you can pause but but i'm going to go over an example of david levitt buying a child so he has a history with adoptions he has adopted at least two polynesian girls that i know of um the Adoption Center of Utah, headed by a man named James Webb, was the agency for one of David Levitt's adoptions. Levitt allegedly traded a car to Webb in lieu of adoption fees, then used his position as Jewab County Attorney, uh, County Prosecutor, to threaten Webb in order to compel him to return the car. Webb testified about this in court in one of his criminal cases because he was convicted of fraud in relation to his adoption business. So Levitt's adoption irregularities do not end there. In 2017, Levitt started the process of adopting a young girl from the Northern Cheyenne tribe in Montana. Despite the fact that federal law under the Indian Child Welfare Act gives priority to blood relatives of Native American children in adoptions and foster situations, David Levitt was able to walk onto the reservation and walk out with the girl on the same day. 
tell me when you've ever heard of a foster placement or an adoption being that expedited. Yeah, no. That doesn't exist. No. Unless but he David was able Levitt. to do it. This is a picture of him with that girl at one of his little public appearances at a fire station. He's holding her. She's covering her ears. She doesn't like the sirens. Her name is Alessandra Florence Fishing Hawk. This is what happened with her. On September 20th, 2017, Alessandra Fishinghawk's mother, Tona Fishinghawk, dropped her off at the Rosebud Emergency Lodge on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana. She just gave up her child. On September 27th, 2017, David Okerlund Levitt showed up to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation to meet with Tribal President <clears throat> Lawrence Chase Killsback. Tribal Social Services would not allow Levitt to take custody of Alessandra Fishinghawk due to federal law and regulations which barred him as a non-native from taking a Native American child he was unrelated to by blood for a foster placement or an adoption. The only way around ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, is if the parents consent to your adoption. There's no evidence that both biological parents of Alessandra Fishing Hawk consented. In fact, Gary A. Valenzuela, the father, definitely did not consent, and he was not notified, which is required under ICWA. Right. <clears throat> so... In addition, Alessandra Fishinghawk had a biological grandmother, Mary Medicine Top, who already had custody of Tona's other children. Mary would have been next in line for custody of Alessandra, along with Alessandra's bio biological father, Gary A. Valenzuela. Instead, David Levitt walked off of the reservation with Alessandra Fishinghawk in his custody on that same day, on, on September 27, 2012. How he managed to do this is explained in a video clip, a clip where he basically confesses to the crime of bribery. The Tribal Social Services looked at us and said, we're not giving you this baby. This video was recorded by a documentarian in 2020. It's 17 minutes long, and it shows Utah County Attorney David Levitt telling the story of how he managed to adopt a tribal infant in 2017. And finally, this strategy comes into my head. And if you got five minutes, I'll tell you the story. As he describes it, his strategy meant hopping on a plane to Montana, then walking onto the reservation unscheduled to meet with the president of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. I said, I'm, I'm here for two reasons. I said, I'm here to tell you the second reason first. Um, but I'll tell you the... Uh, I'll tell you the first reason second. And I said, but before I tell you the second reason, I want to tell you a story. <laughs> his story touches on the importance of family. Then it highlights his close friendship with former Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko. Viktor and I have this goal of introducing Buffalo into Western Ukraine. And you're a sovereign nation, and you have a buffalo herd. And Ukraine is a sovereign nation, and it, and it doesn't have a buffalo herd, but it wants one. And so I'm here to try and, and form, see if we can form a bilateral agreement between the people of the Northern Cheyenne and the people of Ukraine to introduce buffalo to Western Ukraine. And at, at that point, you know, he was all ears. I bet. And I said, that's the second reason why I'm here. The first reason why I'm here is this, that we want to adopt one of your people. He says tribal president Jace Killsback gave his blessing, but tribal social services did not. 
So Levitt went back to the president to try again. Watch and listen to how he describes the tribal president made a compelling argument to help Levitt clear that final hurdle and take home the child that same day. He said, listen, uh, the Levitts are friends of the tribe. He's an asset to the, they're assets to the tribe for more than, more than just this. I left, and five minutes later, the phone rang, and um, it was the social worker saying, I think, I think I figured out a way to get this child to you. Jace Killsback has declined to comment. At the time of this interview, he was in prison for fraud in an unrelated case. Unrelated. I wonder, I wonder what's happened to that poor girl. She's in Scotland with David and Shalom Levitt. Oh, geez. Well, and it's important to note there is uh, a Levitt Foundation currently in Ukraine. The Correct. Levitt Institute, which is David Shalom Levitt's nonprofit, they train lawyers in Ukraine, Poland, Moldova, and other Eastern European countries. All those countries have one thing in common. Corruption. Not just corruption, but a serious sex trafficking problem. And so he's in the Ukraine. He's operating in Moldova. He's operating in the Ukraine. He's operating in Poland. And he's a lawyer from America who's connected to a brother who's served in the Bush administration, has connections with the State Department. Um, he sorry, would be ideally sorry, but let's interject what we just now found out about Ukraine, who they wanted to bring in. Maria. Maria Abramov. Abramovich, who is an who is a known Satanist and and cannibalist in spirit Ukraine cooking. with spirit who does her spirit cooking in Ukraine performance art in Ukraine where Levitz obviously has some serious ties. Holy cow! And what is she the ambassador Holy for? Holy cow! What is she? She's Educate, not, education, right? Yeah, kids, for schools Holy for young cow. children. Hmm? You know, there's some connections, some ties there. There's no way that's not related. Well, it definitely speaks to kind of the disease nature of Ukrainian politics. Well, and right also now. the international level of what's happening here in Utah. Yeah, so David Levitt, wow. by his own admission, offered to facilitate the export of buffalo from the Northern Cheyenne tribe of the Ukraine, utilizing his connections with the Ukrainian government in order to procure Alessandra fishing out. That is a bribe. And he's on tape admitting to it. I'm laughing about it. Yeah, so... It gets worse. When I did the investigation and the research for the article that I wrote on this, I came across sources who told me that Lawrence Chase Killsbeck had told an NBC News employee that Lovett had paid him $30,000 for the adoption. This is not just a Buffalo export agreement. He got $30,000 allegedly. So, And this is all before the Ukrainian war I believe yes. broke out. This yeah. is 2017. Yeah. So additionally. This is when, when Biden was in there uh, with uh, when he was making his threats. No, this is after. That was after? Yeah, this was during the Trump administration. When he was talking about trying to. Well, that was when during the Trump administration when Biden, when he was saying either you fired the, pro the prosecutor. No, that was when he was vice president under Obama. He went over right. to the Ukraine to do that. Okay, so this was later. But this clearly was all that stuff was happening. All the corruption was clearly still happening. Then, yes. So that's crazy. Yeah, Ukraine is known for its corruption. Um, Let's fly our Ukraine flag. So additionally, David Levitt allegedly paid Tona Fishing Hawk to abandon her child 
so that he could then procure the child from the reservation. Tribal employees and Tona's own family members stated that Tona Fishing Hawk began driving a gold Cadillac. Tona's relative, who I interviewed, claimed that Levitt utilized the U.S. bank financial account to pay Tona Fishing Hawk to sell Alessandra Fishing Hawk to him. So we have the bank that they use to transfer these funds. I published that all of this. I sent it to people in, in Utah County Sheriff's Office. You have him. If you get a subpoena and a warrant, you can go subpoena those bank records and see exactly how this was done. I have no indication that that's been done. Yeah, well, um, it's clearly being protected. But I do know that Sheriff Mike Smith and Levitt had some content there. There was bad blood there. I mean, he there was bad blood, and that's what I was capitalizing on. Was I know that Mike Smith was told by DHS to back off of David Levitt due to David Levitt's work in the Ukraine. That I have more than three sources on that. So Gary A. Valenzuela, Alessandra's biological father, searched for his daughter for over a year before realizing that Alessandra was in Utah where he lives in David Levitt's house. So Valenzuela and his mother, Teresa, then went to the Department of Homeland Security to report David Levitt's illegal adoption. DHS Special Agent Adam Koneman and analyst Noel Ingalls were working the Hamlin case, which had been kicked up to DHS by the Provo Police Department in 2014. So going back to Alessandra, I would assume that there are numerous children available. Is there something special about why she was being targeted by Levitt? We'll, we'll get to that. Oh. <laughs> Patience, baby. So... <laughs> This is the letter that the United States Department of Interior Bureau of Indian Affairs sent to Gary Valenzuela explaining what happened with his daughter. According to our records, Alessandra was placed at the Rosebud Emergency Lodge Shelter on September 20th, 2017 and discharged on September 20th, 27th, 2017. Now, this is the biological father. What they don't tell him is who, who was she discharged with? Right. He has to chase his own tail for another, like, year trying to get to the bottom of where his child is. And this is in November 8, 2018. That's when this letter is dated. So this is the Northern Cheyenne Human Services Department, also in October 2018. They're talking to Judge Craig Powell, 4th Judicial District Court, Utah County, who's overseeing the adoption. The Northern Cheyenne Tribal Services Department did find the following individual li listed in the Northern Cheyenne Tribal Enrollment Data Bank. One, Alessandra Florence Fishinghawk, date of birth 12-9-2016. This child does fall under the Indian Child Welfare Act. Please notify the Northern Cheyenne Tribe ICWA program of all future proceedings. Here's the problem with this. Right then and there, Craig Powell should have known Something's wrong. He should have known David Levitt went there and in one day managed to walk off the reservation with that child in his custody. That simply would not happen under the law. There's no legal way for him to do that. But he was able to do it, and then the judge in the case was notified a year later that she fell under ICWA, which meant that the, the adoption proceedings were illegitimate because ICWA gives tribal courts exclusive jurisdiction over adoptions involving children 
who are enrolled members of a Native American tribe. So the Fourth Judicial District Court would have no jurisdiction over this adoption at all. But at this time, David Lovett is Utah County's district attorney. Yeah. 18. And so this is the resignation letter of Lawrence J. Skillsback. I want you to note the date. Let's see if I can. October something 2018. October 9th, 2018. He submits his resignation as the president of the Northern Cheyenne. Okay. Now I want you to look at the date of this letter that he sent to the court Just in the adoption. A few days later. Three days after he's resigned or submitted his resignation letter, he sends a letter to the court. Judge Powell, the Northern Cheyenne tribe considers David and Shalom Levitt as the aunt and uncle of Tona Fishing Hawk and the great aunt and uncle of Alessandra Florence Fishing Hawk under tribal law and custom for all purposes, including for the purpose of Alessandra Florence Fishing Hawk. That's what $30,000 gets you. That's what a buffalo export gets you. It gets you a tribal president who has one of his parting shots going out of office, misrepresents the court, lies to the court that David and Shalom Levitt are the aunt and uncle of Tona Fishing Hawk, Alessandra's mother, and the great aunt and uncle of Alessandra Florence Fishing Hawk. They are not. Right. Like, and Jace Kilsback is not the one who would make that determination a tribal court would make that determination. Or maybe her father, even. Well, her father could consent to the adoption, and under ICWA, both Tona and Gary would have had to consent to the adoption for it to be valid. So ICWA falls by the wayside if both biological parents agree. That's how it could have been fast-tracked, but they still have to go through the process of finalizing it. But he didn't secure the consent of Gary A. Valenzuela. So the law on Indian adoptions is designed to protect Native children from being removed. Previously, Indian children were being placed with non-Native families, and this often ended in severe physical and sexual abuse, not to mention the loss of their culture, right. their language, everything. <clears throat> so the adoption proceedings with regard to Alessandra Fishing Hawk did not follow federal law. Her biological father, Gary A. Valenzuela, was never notified. Neither was her maternal grandmother, Mary Medicine Top. Either would have had a stronger case for custody of Alessandra than David Levitt because they're blood, re they're blood right. relations. Lawrence J. Killsback, tribal president, had no statutory authority to declare the Levitts the relatives of Alessandra Fishing Hawk. His letter to the court stating as much was a lie without basis in fact or law. Additionally, ICWA gives tribal courts exclusive jurisdictions over the adoptions of Native children. This jurisdiction was not followed. David Levitt's adoption of Alessandra Fishing Hawk was illegal. By taking possession of Alessandra, Levitt kidnapped and trafficked her. He had no legal right or legal authorization to take possession or custody of Alessandra Fishing Hawk. Despite this, he was able to finalize the adoption three years later. He is on video admitting to bribing Lawrence J. Skillsback with the offer to export Buffalo to the Ukraine and he allegedly also paid Killsback $30,000. Levitt allegedly bribed Alessandra's mother and paid for the child. 
So I also want to call your attention to the upper corners of this letter from Jay Skillsback. The Morning Star? Yeah. I thought that was a nice... It's actually... That's what one of their famous leaders was called. It doesn't necessarily mean a reference to the devil. But one of the figures in the Northern Cheyenne's tribe in their history was known as the Morning Star. And I guess there are no legal records of other Indian children or Native Not that I have uncovered, but I'm working on it because there are rumors that there were other adoptions out of this tribe involving the Levitt family. Would they have birth certificates? Would they be as easily to traffic as... If they're born on the reservation and they are an enrolled member of the tribe, they would have all of the records of their existence. So an interview with one of Tona's relatives established that Mary Medicine Top, Tona's mother, had been raised by the Eastwood family as part of the Indian placement program under the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that's the connection. She wasn't adopted. At most, it's a foster placement where she goes to school under the Indian placement program. Tona's brother, Justin Fishinghawk, had also been raised by the Eastwoods, but he was kicked out at 16 for questioning the LDS church. So Tona Fishinghawk has a prior history with David Levitt because David Levitt also allegedly represented her in a criminal matter. He's listed as a member of the Cheyenne, Northern Cheyenne Bar for one year, the expiration of his license in 2018. So this is David Levitt down here. Where the uh, cursor is, that is his address in Orem. That's his phone number, and it expires October 2018. The allegation was that he represented Tona in some sort of a DUI incident on the res. I've been unable to substantiate that, so it's just an allegation, but he was only licensed in the Northern Cheyenne Court Bar. He doesn't live in Montana. There's no ties to Montana other than this adoption, which he did not go to the tribal court for, so that can't be the reason he got licensed with the bar. So David Levitt's adoption took three years to finalize from 2017 to 2020. During that time, Tona Fishenhawk was arrested for possession of methamphetamines and child endangerment. The child endangerment charge was a felony. Her mother called the police on her because she had drugs in the house in reach of her children who were living in Mary's house. So initially her case is in the Provo District, but then it's transferred to American Fort, which is significant because if you look at the Provo District one, it says the prosecutor is a guy named Jeffrey Gray. The new DA. But when it gets transferred to American Fork, her listed prosecutor is none other then, or one of her listed prosecutors, none other than David Levitt, the man who is still in the process of trying to adopt her child, Alessandra Fishinghawk. There's nothing in the record that suggests that David Levitt disclosed the relationship with the defendant. Insane. So explain the transition from Gray to Levitt again, because that's significant. So when she's arrested and the, the original case is filed. Where the jurisdiction is in Utah. It's, it's, it's not in on Utah, the Utah, 4th District Pro- Court, Provo. And Jeffrey Gray is listed as the state of Utah's representative, the prosecutor. But then the same day, it gets transferred over to American Fork. Where David Levitt's at. Where David Levitt 
is listed as one of the two prosecutors on the case. So how often do you think it is that a Utah County prosecutor takes specific interest in two misdemeanor drug possession charges and a child endangerment charge? And he also has his in-laws have, have a tie to the defendant's family, and he's in the process of adopting the defendant's child. So Tony Fishing Hawk ends up pleading to lesser charges. She gets the child endangerment charge reduced to a misdemeanor. She gets a suspended sentence and probation. She never complied with the terms of her probation. Like within two months from April to June, an arrest warrant is issued for violating the terms of her probation. And for four years, Tony Fishing Hawk has managed to evade arrest for violating those terms. This is her original violation. And, you know, initially it says she's low to medium in all the categories except for alcohol and drug abuse. Because if you look at her criminal record, that's what she keeps getting busted for. Her first arrest was in the 90s for possession of alcohol as a minor. How did she make it from the res to, to Utah? Who brought her who brought her? Uh-huh. How did that transition? Well, she apparently managed to get herself there. From what I've heard, she managed to get herself from Utah to the res. She was working on the res. She had a job there. And then she starts driving around the res in a fancy gold Cadillac. Right. This junkie who's had multiple criminal she must have came from David, huh? cases and whatnot suddenly manages to get the means to to buy a gold Cadillac and all she drops her child off at a Rosebud emergency lodge. And seven days later, David Okerlund Levitt shows up to pick her up and David Levitt is able to take custody of her that same day. Even though tribal social services told him no first after a call from Lawrence J. Killsback, like he gets to walk off the same day. Nobody who's ever fostered a child or adopted a child right. has had that kind of an expedited yeah. process. I and mean, I guess because of HIPAA, we can't even find out what she was dropped off for, for <clears throat> this emergency. She wasn't dropped off for anything to do with an emergency. She was in fine health. I've talked to people on the res, and I've talked to people who investigated this. There was nothing wrong with that child. Like, Alexandra Fishinghawk was fine. And the proof of that is seven days later, she was able to leave the res. Right. There's nothing wrong with her. If, if she had some sort of health issue, they wouldn't have released her into David Levitt's custody. So to recap, David Levitt illegally procured a child from an Indian reservation, transported that child across state lines, allegedly bribed the child's mother and the tribal president, and managed to get the Utah courts to finalize an adoption that they had no authority to authorize. Remember, according to the Hamlin children, the CS often procures children from polygamous groups and off of Indian reservations. The groups, as I was told, would often get infants or children in trade with other polygamous groups off Indian reservations and other ways. Sometimes they got adults, too. The facts indicate that David Levitt has a long history of illegal adoptions, and the Hamlin girls allege that he's a child rapist, child murderer, and child trafficker. So it tracks. It tracks. Yeah. So your conclusion here is David Levitt is an alleged child rapist, child murderer, and child trafficker where the Hamlin girls are concerned. 
He is a documented kidnapper, child trafficker, and violator of federal and state adoption laws where Alexandra Fishinghawk is concerned. He is also guilty of, allegedly guilty of bribing both tribal president Lawrence J. Skillsback and he allegedly bribed Alessandra's mother, Tona Fishinghawk, in order to procure Alessandra Fishinghawk. He broke the law and he has not been prosecuted or held to an account for his illegal actions. Okay. He, um, some dirt comes out, some of this stuff comes out when he's running uh, again in 2022. And next thing he knows, we know, boom, he is now in, uh, where is it? Scotland? Scotland. Scotland in a castle. What's, what in the world is going Shalom on? He in Shalom bought a castle that is in disrepair. <clears throat> if you look into the history of that castle, it, it's also very interesting because it's, it started out as like a $200 mechanics lien, basically. So the owner said, I've already paid you. I'm not going to pay you. Well, in Scotland, to trigger bankruptcy, it has to be a dispute in the amount of $2,000 or more. So the contractor is arguing with the owner of that castle for a number of years. And it reaches the $2,000 mark in terms of interest on the original invoice. And he hauls her into court to forfeit the castle, like the entire castle. She hires barristers, he hires barristers and solicitors. And eventually this grows into a court case that is in the six figures, like almost seven figures. And then she's forced to give up the castle. Who swoops in to buy it? Like 1.3 million, which is the total amount of, of what was spent on those proceedings for a $200 lien. Who swoops in to buy it? Mr. Levitt. David Levitt. What's interesting about Scotland, if you know anything about Scottish history, is it's actually one of the, I don't know if it was origins, but pagan rituals there are, it's part of the history of Scottish tradition. Mm -hmm. And he lives in a very remote area in a castle of his own. He could do whatever he wants away from prying eyes. And he has Alessandra Fishinghawk with him, who has now been renamed Emma. You can only Emma. imagine what that poor girl is going through. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the score on him. All right, let's talk He's, about – go ahead. He has gotten away with breaking the law with regards to his adoptions uh, with both James Webb and with Alessandra Fishinghawk. He's an alleged child rapist, child murder, and child trafficker, where the Hamlet girls are concerned. And they turned him in in, in five other pages worth of people uh, in 2012 to 2014. So it's been since at least 2014 since anybody's, since they knew what was alleged against him, and they did nothing. So what do we know? So that's, that's David Levitt. What about known associates, i.e. Mike Levitt? What do we know about Mike? As far as Mike is concerned, like the thing that comes up about him in conversations that I've had with people is that they allege that he's unethical. So as far as his Levitt partners, the healthcare consulting firm that he runs, I've talked to people who are employees of it, and they said that one of the things that they noticed was he was consulting for parties who were at competing interest on healthcare policy. So he would sign contracts with both parties 
without disclosing that he was representing the other side. And he would just, you know, he would pocket the money from both. So he was, he uh, was, I guess, hired um, David Hamblin to, tra- to teach him how to train his kids. Well, David Levitt did, yeah. Yes, to train his kids, meaning that it, this was a generational thing from him to his children. Did 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 this start with him, or does this go to his parents and grandparents? Where, where does where do we know about his family? Allegedly, it goes back to his parents. There have been allegations that these kinds of ordinances have taken place on the parents' ranch. Um, that there's a room on the ranch, and that room has an altar, and it has hooks on the walls where robes are hanging. That has been something that, like, is in the lore of the Levitt family and people who know them. That kids have come across that op- that room with an open door and saw it. And so that's the allegation, but I have one source for that. And I wouldn't even call it, like, a first-hand source, which is why I haven't published it, but it's relevant to the question that you just asked. On top of it, like, there are other allegations about extramarital affairs involving Dixie and Phyllis and uh, Okerlund, who was Dixie's wife. Um, the allegation is is that they both had multiple affairs. Um, there have been allegations that Dixie is a bisexual man. So, you know, you, you look at that every time you dig into that, um what you come up with is more in the way of allegations that would tend to confirm or corroborate what is being said about David Levitt and would also provide a plausible backstory for how he came to be involved in this group. You said you have five pages of names. Mm -hmm. Just from the victim statements. When do you plan on uh, releasing those? Well, if you want them, you got them. I'll send them to you. I mean, th- those names are all in the victim statement, so you already have them. What I did was I put all of the names that appeared in those victim statements in an index with page numbers that would tell you where those names appeared in the victim statements. You know, last sure. last year when all the Utah County elections were going on, it was a really chaotic rumor mill. Um the first thing that came out about Levitt was that he was a Soros-funded DA that goes really light on, on crime. You know, and he was just letting people out. Obviously, like you saw with the case of Tona Fishinghawk. Knowing now the lines that cross, especially with Jeff Gray with that case, Jeff Gray actually is now the Utah County District Attorney. He was also endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. I would love to believe that there is at least knowledge, there has to be knowledge between the Fraternal Order of Police and Gray of of some of these things. Is there a path that they can use now with the shift in power now going with Gray that can even retroactively be used to pursue a path to conviction? You would hope. I mean, but in essence, there are people who believe that both sides in any election are CS. I can't say that, but I know that there are people that I talk to in Provo and in 
Utah County who've represented it. That's their core belief. Um, I stick with what I can prove and what I can corroborate from like those victim statements. And I tend to have tunnel vision. My focus is on proving crimes from the Hamlin victim statements. It isn't the wider political network in Utah County. So Jeff Gray's name doesn't appear in those victim statements. Therefore, I really haven't dug into Jeff Gray. If you're not in those five pages of names or you don't come up, like when I talk to a victim or a source as being a part of this group, I don't look into you because I have enough on my plate as it is. And that's what's crazy is this is just from three girls. Yeah. Imagine if someone else came forward or some of these others from other families, from some of the other bloodlines that were much, kept things much more under wrap. Because I've got to believe the way they've been able to keep this silenced, that 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 this has got to be more pervasive. Oh, I've if, had if other people. If they were able to keep it this quiet from the governor's office, I mean, that, that they've been able to suppress all of this for this many years this can't just be a few people keeping the wraps. Keeping yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about it on my <laughs> Substack in an article called, you know, Church of Satan Concepts Gatekeepers. Because in the victim statements, the girls allege that the CS has, quote-unquote, gatekeepers positioned throughout the state of Utah at local and county government. And that those gatekeepers, even if you report the abuse or the criminal activity, those gatekeepers can intercede to obstruct any proceeding or any investigation into the allegations. They can crush it before it gets anywhere. And what I would say is from a circumstantial, from a standpoint of circumstantial evidence, looking at what's going on with David Hamlin and with David Levitt with regards to his adoption, it would appear that they're not wrong. I mean, if you have a taped confession and a taped apology for child rape, and you can't secure a conviction against him, you just dismiss the charges. Um, There is absolutely no innocent explanation for that that I can think of. None. No. no. Um, Last time we talked about um, bloodlines and how that works, and uh, I asked if you would explain that a little bit more. Maybe before we wrap up, would you like to... uh, share with our viewers a little about bloodlines and how that works with the you know families with family structure so with the bloodlines the hamlin girls write about the belief of the church of satan <clears throat> that certain bloodlines have more spiritual power than others the hamlin girls were told that they were part of a royal bloodline within the church of satan conversely like uh shalom eastwood her family, the Eastwoods, were not part of a high bloodline, but she married into the Levitts, who were a high bloodline, but not as high as the Hamlins. That was what the girls were told by their parents and grandparents. And so the way that it works is they're looking to combine bloodlines in order to increase spiritual power within the CS. And also because it consolidates those families through marriage, it makes it much more likely that they'll be able to continue operating as a group without exposure. So if you only marry within the group, as opposed to bringing an outsider in that you have to kind of initiate into the group, let's say, you know, you go off to college, you know, say you go out of state, 
and you go to the University of Arizona, and you're a male in this group, and you come back, and you got the girl that you want to marry, but she's not part of it. And you marry her, you have your typical, you know, temple marriage and sealing. And then at some point, you have to introduce her to what your family is really about. It's probably not going to go too well. And she's probably not going to be happy about the idea of you, shortly after your children are born, performing a blessing at the hospital immediately after birth. But then afterwards, when you bring the child home, performing a ceremony where you assert your status as paterfamilias with the child and invoke the wisdom of parents, which is what these people believe, and you culminate that by digitally penetrating the child, orally sodomizing her as a newborn, and then uh, with all of your male friends in your little local group standing around the child and ejaculating on her. Your wife, who isn't raised in this, that, that this isn't normal for because she didn't experience it from birth herself, is not going to think that this is normal and they're not going to be okay with it. So that explains why these people keep intermarrying with each other because it's the only way that they can keep it discreet and under wraps. Like what happens when someone marries an individual who's not okay with this is detailed in the victim statements as well because uh, Roselle, Roselle Stevenson's brother, Nathan, her adopted brother, married a woman named Linda K. Colquitt. And the girls say that when they went to visit their uncle Nathan and Aunt Linda in Florida, and Nathan was going to abuse them, like sexually, Linda came into the room and started yelling at him and saying, you can't do that. And he slapped her and sent her out of the room. They said that when she was visiting in Provo with Nathan and they would try to conduct ceremonies, um, Linda would lock herself in a room. She wouldn't come out and participate unless they came in and physically brought her out. That's what happens when you marry outside of the group because a normal person is not going to be okay with this. And that's reflected in the victim statements. So the reason these people would emphasize bloodlines isn't just because they believe in the spiritual power. There's a practical component as well. It's how they stay hidden. And that's why <clears throat> you draw parallels by what families are married to who and how often they're pulling, marrying back and forth. Yes. Okay. 